all of this is very tragic in a sense, but it's beautiful in a way of that there is no doubt in my mind that that pain and tragedy is just an inevitable part of one's human experience. And it has really, really transformed me and allowed me to be here in this moment with you, sharing about the things that I've shared. And more specifically, to, to be of service to people. That my, my story is, is powerful and how far I've, I've come is inspiring to a lot of people. And I wouldn't have this asset, so to speak, if I haven't gone through the things I've gone through. Do I wish it would have went down another way? Sure. Yes, I wish life was a little easier. There's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of beauty involved as well. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. Have you ever been overwhelmed by seemingly insurmountable hardship? My guest on this episode could have been the poster child for falling in the face of adversity. He could have checked out figuratively and literally countless times. The odds were certainly stacked against him, but he didn't stay down or give up. Instead, he rose and continues to rise, not despite each challenge, but because of each challenge. And he has become a role model for anyone fortunate enough to hear his story or be in his presence. Shea Bolin has taken the turmoil of his life, cracked open his heart to the collective pain of it, and has healed from the inside out. After so many years of struggling simply to survive, he is now forging a new life path of being of service to others. Whether Shea is modeling how addicts can get clean and find purpose, helping a client release emotional trauma, or mentoring a man to tap into his masculine essence, he does so with the deepest presence and greatest integrity. During this episode, Shea guides us along his life's journey, from his kid sister's struggle with chronic illness and his escape into heroin, opiates, and sex, to his tangled relationship with his parents, and ultimately, the overdose death of his sister. Shea's willpower to be something greater jockeyed tirelessly with his imprisonment to addictions. It was not until his own overdose that he reached his own tipping point, sought help, and ultimately found his duty to serve others. Shea is a personal growth coach and the creator of The Inner Blueprint, a presence-based coaching program that helps clients manifest their highest vision to live a more purposeful life. 
His raw vulnerability is a strength that draws people to him. Alongside his deep presence, willpower, and passion, he is a true tour de force. And perhaps the best part of Shea is that his strength is infectious. We all benefit by being in his company. Shay, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to having you on here, so I thank you for joining me today. Yeah, I'm excited as well, and I'm happy to be here. You and I have known each other now for about a year. It was probably last April or so when we met doing a men's coach training program, and we actually got to have some face-to-face time doing that as well in California. I know that work has become first and foremost in your life. So I thought we'd begin with you just giving us a little bit of a summary of the work that you're currently doing. And then we'll go back into your backstory. And I imagine we'll come back around to your work in more depth a little later. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. I am currently a men's transformational coach. So I work with men one-on-one in more of a emotional, spiritual endeavor with each other. We, we start out with a, a blank canvas together and we, we co-create an action plan for, for this man uh, to start moving forward with a bit more integrity in his life and getting closer and closer to more fulfillment in his life. And so we look at the, the areas and how he holds himself back and more specifically getting clear on his gifts and some action steps that he needs to take to move forward. I'm very passionate about this work. It is, it's more than just a a new career endeavor for me. This is, uh, it feels as if it's my calling. I, I have never felt more aligned. My, my gifts are truly being expressed. And just a few of these gifts are just being a very skillful, intuitive listener. And, this career has allowed me to double down on that and to, to harness it, to get better at it and to use it to, to help people, to be of service and to heal. I have a, a strong ability to be empathetic, very empathetic. And that allows me to, to really serve my clients powerfully because um, I get in touch with their thoughts, feelings and emotions and desires uh, a bit deeper than what they would say anyone else has ever uh, reached them at that level. And so, yeah, over this past year has just been this, this path of, of not knowing what all this looks like and, and, and basically just winging it and just really refining day by day what feels right, what doesn't feel right. Um, in the men's coach training where we met, it really gave me a good set of skills and tools to, to, to help build a framework on how to, to move forward in this career. I'm very grateful for that time together. And of course, for our connection and be here in this moment together. So. Having worked with you now, Shay, for the better part of a year, I am always impressed by that presence that you speak of, that you bring into every interaction. And I know you're, you're doing tremendous service to the people who you're coaching. I'm curious what inspirations in your life have led you to this current path? Well, first I want to touch on, you could call it the opposite of inspirations. Um, Getting really clear on what it is I I don't want. And I I, I shared that word refinement a little bit ago. And I want to, that, that word seems to just really hit home what this path has been like for me. 
refining what feels right and what doesn't feel right in my life. And and thinking back to a few years ago when I was a restaurant manager, it was an amazing restaurant. I, I really enjoyed what I did, but I started to see where this was all heading. Um, I was very good at my job, but I, if I was going to get another promotion, it was going to start looking like corporate and, and just doing a lot of things that I particularly didn't feel like doing. And there was also this desire to, to never have a boss again. I, I just, I'm not a fan of having a boss. I like to be a, a lone wolf. And, and so I, I got started to get really clear on the things that I don't want is I don't want to work for anyone. I don't want to be confined to a certain level of creativity. I want to just have an infinite capacity to express myself and to make changes as need be. Basically, having my own vision and executing it on my own was something that was really calling me. And this led me to quit that job and to start working in the fitness industry as a private personal trainer. And that was a really powerful experience for me because not only was it just a, a career change, a, a dramatic career change, of, but I, it was my first experience working for myself. Um, and more importantly, it was my first experience working with someone one-on-one. -on -one. And when I started working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, I noticed that I really thrived, that having that, that special one-on-one -on -one connection where my gifts really started to express themselves. And I started to feel this feeling of, this is not work, this is my duty. And I started feeling inspired how I could get better at it and, and reach people in a more effective way. And, and at the time, the focus was aesthetic changes in the body, right? And um, yeah, that, that career lasted for about two years and it was so fulfilling and I, I I started to feel very inspired about myself and my gifts and where this was all going. And yeah, close to a year ago, I was so inspired that I decided to completely leave all of that and, and follow my heart into the, the men's coach training and, and, and ultimately being a one-on-one -on -one men's coach right now. And so the, to be more specific with your, your question, the one-on-one -on -one connection inspires me the most. It's, I, I feel this so much fulfillment when I get in those moments when someone is is opening me to their they're inviting me to to come into their inner world and I it really lights me up. I know you bring some very unique perspectives into your coaching work and many of those come from your life experiences. And I know life has not always given you the easy road, so to speak. Wondering if you could tell us a bit about your early days and some of the struggles that you had. Yeah. So I have a unique experience of taking it to an extreme of reaching for something externally to make me feel comfortable in such a, an uncomfortable world at times. And you know, we can think of what Tara Brock calls it, the hungry ghost. And these hunger ghosts can, can manifest with, you know, shopping and, and drugs and, and alcohol and gambling and, and addiction to love and, and all these things, the way it manifests. And, and for me, 
I got introduced to changing the way I felt at an early age in middle school with, with tobacco, pornography, being an adrenaline junkie, and just really establishing my identity in the world with someone who, who thrives on changing the way I feel and getting into to high school at such a, a formative time in my adolescent brain of reaching, reaching for things to comfort me and to uh, make me feel alive. And so this started to look like less time at home with my loved ones, an inability to navigate heavy emotions on my own and a reaching for marijuana, hallucinogenics, and, and this became just so commonplace in my life. This, this desire to, to not be sober, to not be normal. I needed to be on something. And, and at the time, I didn't realize what sort of foundation this was laying in my life and how it was going to play out um, to now. It was all fun and games back then. It, it really was. I had a, a good relationship with my family. I, for the most part, you know, I was a very reckless at times, but still had that love there. It was never that, that teenager that was cursing at my family and slamming the door. It was, it was more of a, a deception and a hiding some of this behavior. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I got good grades in school. And, and, and so fast forward to, to, to my college years, it was uh, binge drinking and cocaine and just living a, what you could say an average American party animal college lifestyle. And it was making it work. You know, I was really juggling a lot of things at the time of, you know, job and, and being in college and being in uh, relationships for off and on for a few years with various girls. And I, there was always this feeling of what I call a delusional sense of optimism that at some point I'm going to just outgrow this whole partying, changing the way I feel thing. And I'm going to find myself. I'm going to, I'm going to blossom into the man that I've always aspired to be, but it was always down the road. It was never, I didn't have the uh, follow through at the time to make the, the radical changes necessary to start heading in that direction. I wanted it so badly, especially, you know, getting into 21, 22, 23. And it's just like, okay, this is starting to really feel um, old. And I see some of my peers moving at a faster rate than me in terms of, 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 succeeding whether it's in college or business and um and but again it was like okay at some point i'm gonna live my best life but for now i'm gonna keep going down this path and just to keep it concise i ended up getting into opiates opiate painkillers and those just took a hold of me right right from the get-go and within a few months i became a full-blown opiate addict this was in around 2008 and taking pills every day. I ended up getting kicked out of my, my family's house and knowing since day one of taking that stuff that this is wrong. My life would be better without it. I, I, there was no denial about my use. And, but again, it was this idea of 
this is helping me right now cope with life and I'm going to get off it at some point. This led me down a very dark path of a very toxic relationship, started shooting drugs, IV pills, uh, smoking fentanyl, selling drugs, and in and out of detox a handful of times. And fast forward, ended up moving to Los Angeles in 2011 to start over. Quickly got into heroin there and, and shooting heroin every day. And, and that lasted for about eight months. And that brought me to a, a darkness and a depth of, of pain that I never thought possible to where this wasn't about partying anymore. This wasn't about feeling good. It was straight up escaping and numbing my human existence. I didn't want to die, but I, I didn't want to live sober either. And it got really scary to where I, I, I got put into this this position in life of, of a, it was, it was really a, either you're going to go on this bitter end to the bitter end and whether it's going to look like a, a jail institution or death, or you're going to accept spiritual help and do something radically different. Yeah. It was October 26th or 25th, 2012. My father came down and got me on a one-way flight to Austin, Texas um, to a treatment center that saved my life. And that was the beginning of my, my spiritual awakening. Shay, during any of this, did you see yourself as an addict or were you in denial of that? Mm, no, I was very upfront and honest with myself about that. But it was as it was, if that, that honesty, it seemed to only create more fuel for the fire of, of like, I kind of, a, it was, had a, uh, pittiness to it. Uh, like, a, I'm, I'm an addict. I can't beat this thing. Um, I know I should get help and poor me. And I, I, okay, just today, one more, just one more time. And tomorrow I'm going to like do that to-do list that I told myself I was going to do. And the days just keep stacking up on themselves. What do you think you were rebelling from or running from? when you began taking substances to, as you said, give you a little escape from reality? Yeah, good question. I think back to when I was much younger, maybe eight, nine, 10. My little sister, who was five years younger, she got diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at an early age. And so... When I am just a young boy and I'm seeing my sister crying in pain, uh, having my mom and dad apply a sponge bath to her and her body start to change based on all the medication she's on. She grew hair in weird places. Her cheeks puffed up from the steroids and can't walk. And, and all of these gifts start coming into the house from loved ones and she gets so much attention and, it started to become very impressed upon me that the world is not safe. This is, this is all too much. I can't process this. And, and when I was 
I remember sitting in a sandbox, you know, we had a sandbox in the backyard and I used to suck my two middle fingers and I would just for hours sit out in that sandbox and suck my fingers and play with my, my trucks. And, and I think that those early moments were, were so helpful for me to escape and to feel safe. I started to go inward, not inward in a higher self-awareness way, but inward in a dissociative way where I was escaping the, the world. It, there was just too much stimuli. I didn't feel my parents weren't there for me. I, I lost my best friend, my little sister to this, this illness. And, and so who knows where this, the, the dots connect with all of this, but that is my, my best um, assumption is that that laid the foundation for, for some future behaviors. So when I started getting into, you know, middle school and getting into uh, doing extreme sports and hanging out with the kids who were just taking risks and uh, smoking big cigars and looking at porn, I just adapted right away of like, this stuff makes me feel good. And this is way better than reality. And I think some things just started to get hardwired in my brain of, of that. I don't want to feel emotions and I'm going to do anything I can to, to not feel. How did your sister's health impact your parents? Mm. It was trauma, straight up trauma in the family, trauma for her, trauma for me, for my mom and my dad. Um, my my father is someone who I respect very much, but he he really threw himself into work. Just started working a lot and providing for our family financially. Um, but the emotional availability of him was just not there. Um, I think he found comfort in in being a workaholic, and and so my mother, things that she's expressed to me. Um, and things that we've all talked about as a family is that she felt, I mean, that this was a lot of it was just on her. And so she, she really struggled. Uh, it's as if she took the brunt of a lot of this, having to be my little sister's caretaker. Um, and then also getting emotionally neglected by my father as well. Um, so she took it very hard. And um, my older sister, she was already moved out of the house by this time. She, she came out of the closet at age 16, moved to Seattle, um, and really found herself out there and distanced herself from the family as well. Yeah. Have you ever reflected upon how life might have been different had your little sister not developed juvenile arthritis? Hmm. You know, I never have. I, I think it's, it's, it's beneficial to entertain certain scenarios and how they might play out. But I also, there's another piece for me that also just sees it as kind of pointless because there's a, it's, there's almost a, it's just not real. You know, I, I find so much value in, in facing what's real and, and what actually happened. And um, because yes, all of this is very tragic in a sense, but it's beautiful in a way of, of that there is, no doubt in my mind that 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 pain and, and tragedy is just an inevitable part of one's human experience. 
And it has really, really transformed me and allowed me to be here in this moment with you, sharing about the things that I've shared. And more specifically, to, to be of service to people. That my, my story is, is powerful and how far I've, I've come is inspiring to a lot of people. And I wouldn't have this asset, so to speak, if I haven't gone through the things I've gone through. Do I wish it would have went down another way? Sure. Yes, I wish life was a little easier. There's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of beauty involved as well. Knowing you as I do, I am not surprised at all by the answer that you just gave because you have this incredible ability to always find the silver lining in any situation and you're not a victim to any of it. You don't act like you're a victim to any of it and you, you help others to see the world through that empowering frame rather than from the victim frame and it's very commendable. Can you talk a bit more about your relationship with your mom? Mm, yeah. Because I know there were some complexities there that potentially influenced where things went for you. Yeah. You know, I just want to start off by saying that I, my mother and I have such a unique, special relationship. And she... Now as adults, we, we get to have these conversations that she is someone that is just so invested in mental health and her story and her path. And, and um, she's just been such an advocate for me since an early age of the power of, of everything from self-help books to, to cultivating your spirituality to, to, to healing. And I wouldn't be who I am today with, without her. And, and so our relationship, it's as if we've got it very defined and solidified because we've had so many communications uh, or so much communication about it. Um, and so I know our story very well. And I think that that is, is rare. I, I talk to a lot of men who, who haven't had as, as much in-depth conversations with their mothers before. And, and, and so, it has been established that that when my mother felt neglected by her husband, my father, um, I became a, a shoulder to cry on and a what we've called a, a surrogate husband. And, and this really impressed upon me at an early age that I need to keep my mom happy. I need to be there for her. I need to to soothe her and to, to, to just make sure that she's okay, which that's beautiful. That's great. Yes. But I've, there's a shadow side to it. Um, and that shadow side looks like her not having the capacity to be there for me as, as I needed her to be. Um, it was as if I was, had to rise to, to something that I wasn't fully equipped to, to be there for her in the way that she needed me to be there for her. And, and so I think um, the way this played out in, in high school in particular, and even throughout my addiction, when things got even darker, it's, it's a, a deceptiveness of out of what I thought at the time was respect of like, I don't want to come crying to my mom for help because 
that means it's going to expose this behavior I've been up to and it's going to worry her. It's going to, she's going to lose it. Like she can't handle this. And, and, and so I, I thought at the time that I was protecting my mother, but really I was distancing myself out of just shame and fear of, of what she would think of, of my behavior. And also, you know, I, I knew that she would try to get me help or, and I wasn't ready for it at the time. Um, but fast forward a few years, I, it, you know, it's, a, it's, an, it's, you go to therapy for long enough and you start to know your story and your patterns and you get to see how the dynamics of your relationship with your mother really start to play out in your, your my dating life. And, and so this has been some serious work for me and I've, I've come a long ways and I, I feel I still have, have a significant amount of work to do to, to break free from some of this wounding and some of this conditioning. But, um, it's this, this inability or this fear to set boundaries with um, being in an intimate relationship of, out of fear of, oh, they're going to love me a little bit less or I got to keep them happy. And, and so, yeah, there's been this pattern in the, in the past few years of, of showing up in an intimate relationship in a way that's a bit more passive and um, just not strong in my presence, not strong in my masculinity. And... And it's, it's not serving me and it's not serving them. And I have really, yeah, I've come a long ways in regards to that. So I could talk in so many different avenues, but we'll, we'll stop with that. Is the current relationship, uh, the weakness you've just spoke of, that's call it validation seeking. I know you and I have used that term before in the past. Is that something you're aware of in the moment? Mm-hmm. Or is it only in hindsight that you realize what you've been going through and doing in that relationship? Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine my my life to to be we could call it unconscious uh, for for a large amount of time, and in being blind to how I'm showing up in the world, and just being very externally focused. That you know, oh, other people are the problem, or she doesn't. You know, it's you know, you could say being a victim. And and so when I got sober and I started having more of an introspective view on myself, I started waking up to these, these, these patterns of um, validation seeking and my craving for it and my, even my skillfulness, uh, how good I was at, at getting it and how much suffering I would feel when I didn't get it. And, and so it's been this beautiful journey of, of courageously looking at these things and breaking free from them. So to answer your question is, yes, I'm very, very aware of it in the moment. And of course, I have my, my blind spots, but I have come such a long ways to, to break free from this, this compulsion to be validated by others to reassure me that I am loved. I am, I'm good enough. And it has been so freeing because I am starting to really come to know a place within me that is full of love and all the things that I aspire to be and to represent in the world. And that has become my, 
my foundation, my, my launch pad for, for how I show up in the world. And um, it's scary. It's daunting at times. Um, but wow, it's been just really, really transformative. Shay, you and I have both worked with the concept known as Imago therapy. And in that concept, basically the premise is that we seek out relationships, intimate relationships that help to continue the unfinished story with our parents or whomever our caretakers may have been. Have you applied that concept or that thought process to your current relationships and validation seeking? Yeah, especially with, with females. I think that that's where it really, really plays out. My mom used to call me the, the Buddha boy because my older sister, and I say this with all the love in the world, she was not planned. And she, she came at a very, I mean, my mother was 17 when she had her. And uh, my dad was 18 at the time. And it was very challenging for them to have a child at that time. And so 10 years later, when they had me, uh, my dad's business was doing well. They planned for it. They were just so excited. And from an early age, they, they did start off showing just so much love and, and just were enamored by me and would spoil me. And, and my mom, yeah, would call me the, the Buddha boy of, of that, almost this, this perfection. This, this is our perfect son. And I don't know where I started to, to get all of this, but there's this striving for perfection in regards to how the female views me. And, and having a, and I know I spoke earlier about my needing to keep my mom happy, and, but we could take it a step further and say that this, is, this feels uncomfortable for me to share right now, but it's the truth. This is if my, my kryptonite is, is having a, a woman be pissed off at me or, or just not like me. And it, it allows me to, this, this disposition or this personality to, to really capture women's attention or um, to build rapport with them very quickly. Um, but there's a sort of a, a, a disingenuousness about it of at times where I've, I had, I mean, in my early twenties, I was uh, really good at manipulating and picking up women that that was cool to me. And that's how I found validation. And um, so it was more, it was about more notches on the belt and seeking this, this false sense of power and pride by being really, really promiscuous. And and over the years, I've really broken free from a lot of that. Um, but yeah, it's still with me. This, this, this part of me that just really wants you to like me. Thank you for sharing that. I know that wasn't easy. It's never easy, I find, to do the inner reflection, especially on the areas of our life that are our, as you said, our kryptonite. And it's powerful to be able to do it uh, if, if we can do it, but it's never easy. The Imago therapy is a concept that was 
coined by Harville Hendricks and his wife who wrote Getting the Love That You Want, which is a book I recommend for anyone who, anyone actually, period. Uh, it's an incredible book, whether you've had a, a beautiful upbringing or something less than that, and whether you have an incredible current relationship situation or something that you're striving for, there's so many gems of, of wisdom in that book. So I definitely recommend it. I want to go back a bit, Shay, to the substance abuse. How dark did things get for you? There's, there's a few standout moments. Um, one is it's 2012, Venice Beach, California. All I have to my name is my, my bike, my backpack, my phone. And I still had a place to live at the time. Uh, that was starting to, to come to an end, though, based on my behavior and my addiction. My, my routine, you could say, was to go down to um, where the bums, a lot of homeless people were hanging out on, on Venice Beach, and there was a handful of them that I've, I've bought drugs from before. And I mean, they don't even own a shirt. So that's how poor they are. And, but they know how to find best heroin. And I would get my, you know, sometimes waiting for hours and, and just having to, to hang out there and just starting to feel so uncomfortable in my body, you know, with the, the heroin withdrawal starting to come over me. And, and just, it's, it's a feeling of, of survival too. Like I, fundamentally don't feel like I am going to be okay or to even live this, these withdrawals and I want to get high now. And, and so, yeah, this one particular day I, I, I got my stuff and I, my whole MO was to, to go into single stall bathrooms in um, Taco Bell or like a grocery store or a gas station to where I could privately um, shoot up and and I remember blacking out I, I did overdose um, not overdose in the sense to where I couldn't be resuscitated and needed to have an ambulance but I, I came to which I don't know how long had, had passed I imagine it to be upwards of 45 minutes and uh, I woke up in my my own throw up and it was a Venice Beach bathroom and and I had this just like a feeling of like that I lost some of my heroin and I just was started kind of digging through my own throat up trying to find it and, and just still being so nauseous because I was so high. I did too much, you know, and, and then I came to even more. It was just covered in, in puke in this dirty stall and there's people outside. And I just was like, you're going to die, Shane. You're going to fucking die that this drug does not choose. It doesn't matter how good of a guy you are, how bad you want to live. Like, it's just going to end. It's going to end like this if you keep this up. And that was, you know, it took probably another month or so to, to finally, you know, ask for help and come out here to Austin. But um, that was one of my darker moments of, of helplessness and a, a defeatedness about this thing. Um, yeah. 
what impact longer term did that have? Did you find yourself back in similar situations again and again, or was that a turning point for you? Mm. That was a huge turning point. Once I got sober, I, it's as if I entered this, this fork in the road. Um, you know, that previous fork was, was very hedonistic. It was very just gimme, gimme, gimme. I want to feel good at whatever, whatever means necessary. If this means I have to lie to my mom and, and steal money from, uh, from someone or to, to lie to my roommates. And it was very, very selfish that I will do anything to feel good in the moment. It was all about instant gratification. And, and so when I got sober and, and just thrust into this new way of life of, um, well, I'll paint a bit of a picture for you. It's, um, this, this mansion out in West Texas, um, with 12 other guys who are from the same situations as, as I am. Uh, we're doing CrossFit five days a week. We are doing therapy for hours on end, painting our emotions and watercolors and journaling and making our own food. And it was very, very uncomfortable in the beginning, especially during the withdrawal phase. But I quickly started to realize like, wow, this is my moment. This is this new fork in the road and I'm never going to look back. I started to feel little gifts started to happen. The first gift was probably at around maybe day six of sobriety where there was a, a little pilot flame of, of a fire within me to, to like, wait, I can do this. I, it was like a little, little sliver of belief in myself that I think I can do this. And, and I just started fanning that flame and I started showing up to the workouts a little bit differently. I started to, to, to laugh a little bit more. I started to uh, open up to the men that were with me. I started to be helpful. I started to really um, take my chores seriously and, and sweep those corners in the room when, when nobody would know, nobody was looking, but I did it because it was the right thing to do. And I started to really establish a, a moral code within myself on how I want to show up in life no matter who's looking, that this is about me and how I view myself and who I want to represent. And, and it just started, and then probably around day 30, I, I went a whole day without thinking about drugs or alcohol. And that was like, what? How does this happen? Just weeks before I was on my knees begging for help, I can't get this monkey off my back. Um, and then fast forward, maybe day 45 when I got assigned a, a buddy who I had to um, give a tour of the house and show him how everything works. And, and he was just so grateful, like, man, you just seem like you got it together. Like, I want to be where you're at. And, and it was like, wow, there's something to this whole service thing. Like, I feel amazing. That's what they call spiritual dope. It's like, okay, let's, let's fucking go. You mentioned CrossFit. And also I know as a personal trainer, I know you to be incredibly fit. I'm curious, did you maintain that throughout this whole period? Were you always taking care of your physical body despite what you were putting into it? <laughs> yeah, well, as they say, one addiction hops to a new one once uh, someone gets sober. 
so yeah, you could say I got into compulsively working out, um, got in really, really good shape and I loved it. I, as soon as I got out of treatment after that 90 day program, I, I got more into, um, bodybuilding and, and just very dedicated to that. Um, and maintained a very structured routine, um, started to get more serious about my diet. And it was more of a pursuit of aesthetic changes, um, not so much performance. And, and I loved it because it was very meditative for me. Um, I didn't really like the being told what to do in CrossFit. Um, and hopefully the, the listeners here are starting to get this idea of, I really like being a lone wolf. I don't like being told what to do. I, I, um, because I held myself accountable. I, I'm not that person that would need someone to write a workout for me or tell me what to do or to blow a whistle at me. Like I can find that fire within, you know? And, and so, yeah, I stayed very dedicated to that. And then um, something interesting happened about um, a few years later was I, I just aesthetically, I was just like, I did it. Like, you know, if I wanted to get bigger, I would have had to just eat a lot more calories. But, but basically I achieved this, this goal that I set up to do of having a certain amount of body fat percentage and a certain amount of muscle mass. And, and I, I really noticed how, wait a second, I'm not necessarily any happier. I, I don't feel differently. Um, this is great. I'm proud of myself. Took some cool selfies, got some likes on Instagram, but like there's gotta be something more to this whole fitness routine and being really structured and I, I didn't consciously choose this, but I think it just naturally started happening in this direction was I got into what I like to call intuitive training of not having any sort of structure or plan, nothing. Some days this could look like crazy intense sprint intervals with burpees in between. And other days it can look like a just lollygagging on a, a foam roller for 30 minutes um, or riding my bike for 30 miles or going and doing like five by five deadlifts. It's, it's just giving my permission, self permission to do whatever the hell I want to do. And whenever I feel like doing it and that's what I've been doing since. And I love it. Yeah. What was your body physically like when you were an addict? Mm. I was very, very skinny because I didn't own a car at the time. So I was riding my bike a lot. It was, um, yeah, no muscle mass whatsoever. Sunken, sunken eyes, um, very malnourished looking. Um, and I, yeah, very, very weak, skinny and frail. So many people who were on, who are addicted, and the way that you were don't come out of it at all in some cases what do you think kept you out of jail alive moving forward with some inner drive to do better with your life yeah yeah great question this is something that i feel like i could write a book on um because I've spoken with a lot of addicts over the years of, of being of service to them, speaking at treatment centers, getting to know them. Um, I mean, probably hundreds, hundreds, maybe thousands. And 
The common theme between those who seem to make progress towards recovery and those who do not, it's this idea of hope. I had hope from an early age. I remember, because when I was in high school, I remember reading books like Tony Robbins and, and these other millionaire rich quick books. And I, I always had this belief that, that my life would be better sober. Not necessarily sober in the, the sense that I would go to treatment and be in recovery and, and all of that, but just there was this wisdom that I felt of for me to be as successful as I want to be with um, whether it's business, uh, having an amazingly hot wife with beautiful kids and an amazing house, I need to be running on all cylinders in my brain. And, and, and there was just like this, this intuition that, that being on drugs and alcohol um, were not conducive to that path. And, and that goes back to what I talked about, that delusional sense of optimism, that there was a seed there. There was a seed that, that was planted of like, that life could get really, really good if you're sober, um, which is so rare. I don't, other people don't have that usually. They, they come from, um, it's most common to come from very, very traumatic, broken households and, and upbringings where they don't have that ability to dream big. And, and so um, my little sister, for example, like she struggled with opiates as well. And it ultimately took her life on October 7th, 2019. And, you know, speaking to her throughout the years and I mean we used drugs together but ultimately I got sober and tried to get her sober and she did for a good year and a half and but she didn't have the hope that I did and that that hope is a it's a necessary ingredient that you've got to have because sobriety in the beginning especially is is very challenging you feel like a fish out of water it, it's just you the, the newness of it and the, the unfamiliarity of it, it's, it's scary. And, and so that, that sliver of hope that like we're heading in a good direction um, is life or death to a lot of people. Can you talk a bit more about your relationship with your sister as you move through childhood and up to her final, final days? Yeah. Yeah. When she was born, I remember just being so excited and thrilled to have a baby little sister. And we became best friends. I think the, the nurturing part of me, the, the empathetic part of me, the, the soft, sensitive boy that I was really, really came out and connected with her. And I don't remember the specific moment when things started to change, but it was definitely around the time that she came down with chronic pain and high fevers and ultimately was diagnosed with the, the arthritis. And seeing her in pain and seeing all those presents and seeing all how, how much love and attention my mom and dad were giving her, I I'd like to believe that my, my central nervous system just couldn't process this. I didn't know how to, to move forward. And the way it started to manifest in my actions was 
resentment. And I didn't even know it at the time. I just was a little boy. And I started teasing her, being mean to her, kicking her when she's down. And we had, you know, growing up, um, fast forward a few years and it's as if there's this time period where she was in middle school and I was in high school and I don't even remember her. Like we, we were just roommates. We would maybe get into an argument here and there about who's taking longer in the bathroom or whatever, but like there was no emotional connection whatsoever. It was just my, my little sister who lives upstairs and I'm her brother that lives downstairs and we'd have family dinners and stuff here and there. And, so a lot of distance and and there was a, a lot of shame and regret in regards to all that. But fast forward a few years to where when I moved back from, from Phoenix after college and I moved into the house, um, that's how I got on the opiates was with her. I, I, I got two DUIs in one month. Um, in 2008 and, and that's why I was like at home so much because I just couldn't go out and party I just got these two DUIs and, and we started bonding over these pills we would take the pills together and it took the edge off of my shitty situation it took her pain away and we'd watch movies we'd laugh we'd order food together we'd lay in bed together and it was as if this these drugs just um, it was like this pseudo way of connecting and I started stealing them from her and, and I parents had to buy a safe and got kicked out of the house. And, and so it was very, very toxic in a lot of ways, but also, you know, it was, it was connection nonetheless. And that she carried on with, with um, a bit more, you could say of a healthy relationship with her pills than I did. I, I got to a bottom much quicker. Um, but she, she ended up getting into uh, a few years later into heroin and came here to Austin for treatment and stayed sober for about a year. And, and we connected a lot. We'd, we'd go out to, to dinner and we would, um, it was, I, I saw the light come on back in her and, but there's also this, kind of a numbness about her that, that she just she still felt like a fish out of water and the connection just it, it wasn't strong and, and we ultimately were able to make amends to each other I made amends for everything and, and so there was a lot of forgiveness and she made amends to me about some stuff and um, yeah fast forward some time and, and she relapsed and got into a relationship with a man who was a heroin addict they lived together uh, she was doing heroin for a good year and hiding it from, from us as a family. Um, he went to jail. She moved back home to Montana. Parents are giving her another chance. And um, she got back into to heroin in Montana and ultimately uh, overdosed in the bathtub. And, and I'll end with this. I just want to share this real briefly. Is There is something so tragically beautiful about the way that she died with you take one of the world's most potent substances of heroin and you combine it with a hot bath 
and candles lit. And that's how she died. It's, it's just like the highest form of pain relief and self-care of like, um, and this is what I spoke to, spoke about her at the funeral and for the audience, it was, it was my intentions to give the audience just a bit more of a compassionate viewpoint of, of heroin addicts of like, it is an emotional pain reliever. It is, does it make it right? No. Does it have a lot more cons and pros? Yes. But it takes the pain away. And, and she just had a hard, hard life to where her physical body is not safe. And that's how much pain she was in. And she's free now. I'm sorry for your loss, Shay. Thank you. And I appreciate you sharing that as I know others will find benefit in, in your words and in your candor. As you were speaking, it reminded me of the hope that you've always had, the hopelessness that perhaps others have. And at one point, I've heard you speak of finding gratitude in the drugs and in your drug abuse. I'm wondering if you could speak about that for a moment, mm -hmm. how you did manage to find gratitude through the drugs. Yeah, yeah. You know, what comes up first for me is service. There is a emphasis on the recovery path on being of service to other addicts who are in uh, a similar situation that you've been in and that your life experience can be used as an asset to be there for them in a way that no therapist or doctor can be that you can reach them in a deeper way and ultimately give them hope that like, whoa, if this guy has been where I've been and he's now where he's at, he can do it too. Maybe I can do it too. And so I started really doing a lot of that. Um, and it started to give me purpose in my life for the first time ever having purpose. And that purpose was a flower that just started to blossom more and more and get bigger and brighter. And I become, or I became more reliant upon it of that this is the guiding force in my life and to continue doing my best to, to water it. And um, where now how I show up in life is with purpose and with intention and to, to be a fighter of the good fight. Um, and this has expanded upon so much more than just addicts. Um, I still do my best to be on the front lines of the addiction epidemic, but my work has, has taken me to, to other populations as well. And, and so there's a profound amount of gratitude for my relationship with the drugs because they, they allowed me the credentials um, and the, the experience, the, the qualifications to, to be someone who's inspiring in the world. To, 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 I do practice what I preach. I have, have been to hell and back. And 
What a gift. Yeah. I'm curious today what your ongoing spiritual and personal development practice looks like. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm a devout meditator. Um, I meditate every day. Um, sometimes it has structure to it. Other times it does not. Um, but it's, it's, it's my disposition these days in regards to my relationship with meditation is a, a much more contemplative. I, when I, I'm out on my bike or in nature, just doing things around the house, my meditation practice isn't as, it's not as compartmentalized, like, oh, I meditate and then I go live my life. It's there is this integration where I'm moving through my day with a bit more flow and aliveness that has the same texture as when I'm sitting on the meditation cushion. Um, so I just wanted to, to really emphasize that, that that is a huge part of my life and that it, um, it, it plays out in more than just sitting on a meditation cushion for 20 minutes a day. Um, I see a therapist every week. I have had a therapist off and on for my whole life. Um, this one in particular, I've seen every, every Wednesday um, for the last four years. And then before that, I was seeing a man for yeah, three years. And I am such an advocate for, for psychotherapy. It's been very helpful for me. Um, I go when things are going great and I go when, when life seems a bit tougher. Um, she is, she's on my team. Um, I have a personal coach. I, that has, has allowed me to, to really meet my edge in a lot of areas and to, to see some of my blind spots and, and also learn from, from someone who is, is a successful men's coach. So that has been great to have that mentorship in my life. Um, I read a lot. I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I love some heady spiritual books. Um, I'm really big into uh, esoteric Christianity right now. Uh, I'm learning about people like uh, Thomas Merton and Richard Rohr and, and getting to know God within um, by going inward and having more of a contemplative life. And, and that has been just so eye-opening. Um, I, I spend a lot of time in nature. Um, I, I go on little solo hikes. I ride my bike a lot. Uh, I ride my bike probably 20 miles a day, five days a week. Um, I do body weight movements right now. I'm not really doing a lot of strength training. Um, and again, just whatever I feel like, like yesterday I did a hundred inchworms to push-ups for time. Um, and just random stuff like that. And yeah. You've taken the collective trauma of your life and you have turned it into a gift and you're now using that gift to help others. Let's talk a bit more about your coaching and what that looks like and what it means to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been really special. Um, because this, this endeavor that I'm on with this coaching career is 
Yeah, I really want to emphasize the word alignment because there's all these pieces here. There's this piece about me wanting to be my own boss. That need is being met with this career. There's this piece about me wanting to serve others. That's being met. Um, there's this piece about my work being remote. I can travel anywhere in the world. I've always dreamed about this. That piece is being met. Um, I am being financially taken care of in a way that I've never experienced before. That piece is being taken care of. And my gifts, my gifts are being called to this, um, to where I am learning to really, really harness them and to hold powerful space for someone else and, and just really stepping into this, this identity, this, this, uh, this new way of being of, of a healer. And there's some growing pains involved with this and then shedding the, the egoic identities of my past and then stepping into uncharted territory and then following my intuition and following my heart and, so there's all those pieces sort of coming to a head here at this one aligning path. Of, and this may look different uh, in the future, and I'm open to that. But for right now, um, I feel just so on fire with the work I've been doing. And, and it helps. You know, we, we talk about validation. It, it helps to hear how I'm impacting my clients. And you, I mean... The, the messages I get, the emails I get, the, 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 the response of like, this is serious stuff. This is transformative stuff. Like, let's do this. Like I am, you know, on my tougher days, yes, I, I get very overwhelmed and I can be like, where is this all going? I need to go work a nine to five and kind of do it a more traditional route because like this is all like where's this all going um because this flow state that i put myself in can can be uh very challenging and, and gets a little squirrely you know um, but on my good days which are most days there's a uh, an abundance feeling that the, the money is going to come and clients are going to just present themselves out of nowhere based on me continuing to show up um, when the quarantine and the, the pandemic all started to really uh, hit, I felt called to offer free coaching sessions and the slots booked up rather quickly. And it was such a fulfilling experience because I, I got to meet with close to 25 people over the course of two weeks. I, I really spent a lot of time and emotional energy in that and ultimately burned myself out. But um, it it was so special because when I would get off the calls with these people, I felt like I was a millionaire. I felt like I got the money. I felt like I won them as a client. And that goes to show you that how in alignment I am of that I'm doing this work and it's not about getting the client or getting the sale, that that is secondary. What's primary is me showing up and serving people and that there's this firm belief within myself that feels so rock solid that I will be taken care of tenfold when I keep showing up in this way. What advice, if any, do you have for listeners? Yeah. And I'll just leave it at that. I know that's an incredibly broad question. Right. You know what? 
this is this what is what's most alive for me right now. I'm seeing this in a, a pattern in my my friends, uh, in my clients, especially not so much in myself because I, I've learned to do things a bit differently. Um, I want to talk about this idea of, of goals and and having a, a plan for your life. Um, and so I hang out with a lot of entrepreneur uh, driven type friends. Um, friends that are ex-engineers, uh, they're very good with uh, web design and um, just systems and spreadsheets and just very, very smart people. And, and I, a lot of my clients are in tech industry too. And so their intellectual side of their brain is so beautiful and it serves them very well in a lot of areas. Um, but they've invited me into their inner world and the pain that this causes them and this seems to be very normal in our culture. It's, it's, the, it's, it's so common. It is, it's as if our intellectual centers in our brain just get hijacked. And there is a neglecting of this other side of things. Um, this could be explained in a variety of ways, but I'll do my best with calling it just presence. Um, there is a neglecting of the power of, of being present in, in one's life and setting aside the goals the structure and the agenda to meet what's here in this moment. Um, and there's a lot of pain that's being caused as a result of people's dedication to their goals, where they show up very rigidly. They show up that in, in this way that life is binary and that um, we are robots and we, you know, we, we come up with a plan, you stick to the plan, you get the outcome. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's, I tell my clients, that's so beautiful. We, we, we want to keep that going, but we've also got to make space for this other, other side of, of this flow, this, this um, malleableness, uh, the importance of that and the value that that can deliver to your life. Um, so to make it really clear and concise, my advice for you is um, what are you neglecting? as a result of being so dedicated to your goals? What is behind all that? I also want to reflect on that too. It's commonly a goal in men's work to define your mission and to become very clear on what it will look like to be pursuing that mission. And one thing that I often teach is that missions will come and go. They can be very short term or very long term. And as you, you've spoken of today, you've had numerous ones and you entered into a career of personal training because that was your then mission. And when it came time to move on into coaching, you did. And you had clear focus with that and you made a clear transition. And so just to piggyback on what you were saying, I I encourage people to always stay present with what is alive in them at this very moment, because what has been your mission maybe for the past decade is may no longer serving you. It, it might be something that it's time to move on and to look at what's next or more acutely what's now. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Segwaying from that. What is now and next for you, Shay? Mm. 
Well, as you can tell, I feel very devoted to where I'm currently at with my, my clients. Um, so continue powerfully serving them, um, doing the, the work that it takes to, to get some more clients, you know, and to, to, to sh share my message with, with more people, um, to be that, that beacon of, of hope. And outside of that, um, I'd like to write a book and I am going to create retreats. I, I am traveling more and I, yeah, those, those things just seem, those are, that's it. I want to keep it simple. Like that's, that's my, that's what's next for me is retreats, a book. I'd like to do more speaking engagements. Um, and it's all in the vein of, of just sharing this, this message of, of love and, and hope for um, a time that the world needs it most. Yeah. Well, as we've spoken of before, I would love to collaborate with you sometime on some retreats. So let's keep that dialogue going because yeah. I think that would be yeah. a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed having you here today. Your story so powerful your message is so relevant and pertinent where can listeners find out more about you shay hmm. i am most active on instagram it's s-h-e-a-b-o-l-a-n-d is my handle that's my full name also my website my full name.com shaybolan.com uh, those two areas i would love to connect with you, send me a message. My email also is shay at shaybowen.com. And yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that you and I ended up coming together in the same program. And now I have the opportunity to collaborate with you in life and have you as a friend. I value your friendship deeply and your experience in life and you have just such a wealth of experience and wisdom to offer to those who you are coaching and those who are around you. So I, I just want to acknowledge you, acknowledge your, your triumphs and your courage and, and thank you. Mm, thank you very much, Todd. It's been a, an honor to not only be here today, but be your friend and to connect with you and to, to cultivate our friendship. I look forward to what we can create together from, from here on out. Thanks for listening to Salish Wolf brought to you by anchor point expeditions. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for more information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. Norm Han and I are planning to host a surf retreat in stunning Tofino, British Columbia on October 4th through 7th, 2020. Registration is not yet open due to the global pandemic, but feel free to connect with me so we can discuss how this opportunity could impact you. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcys. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. For episodes on holistic health and wellness, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Grim College Radio at pacificgrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
Please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming DocCast, Takea Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up a residence on a tiny island off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off.